If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Does the Thirty Years' War merit its gruesome reputation? Who were the winners and losers of the conflict? And why did a Protestant mob throw Catholics out of a top-floor window of Prague Castle in 1618? In this episode, our production editor, Spencer Mizen, is joined by Professor Peter Wilson to discuss everything you wanted to know about the Thirty Years' War. Peter is one of the country's leading experts on the conflict, and his books include The Thirty Years' War, Europe's Tragedy, and The Holy Roman Empire, A Thousand Years of Europe's History. As always, with our Everything You Wanted to Know series, our questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted on our various social media platforms. Peter, my first question is one that ranks highly on our internet search queries, and that is, what was the Thirty Years' War? Now, I know that that's clearly a, a really big question and one we, we could be discussing for hours, So, but I wonder if you could give us a brief overview and maybe outlining where, where the conflict was fought, who was doing the fighting and what they were fighting for. 
Right. Well, it's not surprising that that's the top question because really how you answer this question really determines how you answer most of the other questions to do with the war. So I think the, the, the simplest thing is to disentangle the Thirty Years' War proper, which is a war about the political and religious, religious order in the Holy Roman Empire. That's Europe's largest state in the heart of Europe at the time. And if you disentangle what was going on in there with um, the other wars that are running in parallel. So there's a war between Spain and the Dutch Republic, um, which concludes at the same time in 1648, at the end of the Thirty Years' War. There's a, a war between um, France and Spain. There are various conflicts in the Baltic, especially between um, Poland and Sweden. And there are other conflicts elsewhere in Europe. The, the British civil wars are going on more or less at the same time in the second half of the Thirty Years' War. So if we separate out those wars and we see the Thirty Years' War proper, that starts in, in May of 1618. It, and it uh, evolves as a, as a sequence of basically crises which, which can't be contained and are kept going by the intervention of various other, other powers. And it's fought between um, the Holy Roman Emperor, the Habsburg family, and their allies in the empire uh, against their opponents within their own lands and those within the empire and external assistance. What caused the war? This is a question actually which was submitted by uh, Tommy Ronco on Instagram. So so why did it start? Right, well, the, the, the simple answer is, uh, I think, to see this as something that isn't inevitable, right? If we, if we see this as inevitable, somehow going back to the problems of the Reformation, which are over 60-odd years before, if not longer, then we um, prevent, you know, we, we don't understand why people took the choices that they, that they took. With it. The historical actors have no, no agency. So we need, to, we need to sort of forget the fact that this is somehow pre-programmed. This is made by, this is a conflict caused by people making mistakes, essentially. Uh, and why, why are they arguing? Why can't they agree well um, part of the problem was that religious differences do matter religion provides the kind of fundamental legitimacy in society uh, uh, and it's an age where toleration is unthinkable there can only be one truth because of course there's only one god um, so that obviously makes any disagreement difficult but that doesn't necessarily mean you can't agree it's possible to to rub along and and to get on on with with, with things and most of the time that's what's been happening for the last sort of six seven decades so that the real problem is there's a there's a political vacuum in the empire the Habsburg family which have been basically ruling the empire since the um, middle of the of the 15th century are very weak uh, around um, the beginning of the 17th century they've made various concessions to powerful uh, groups of nobles in their in their um, own lands the lands that they own directly uh, especially Bohemia is one of them uh, and they've just slowly started to claw back some of these concessions so that's antagonized uh, groups of, of nobles in their own in their own lands most of whom are protestant but there are also some catholics and then at the same time the fact that they've been preoccupied by these problems in their own lands have meant that they've kind of taken their eye off the ball in the holy roman empire so what we would now broadly call germany and there's another kind of rivalry going on there that's colored by religion but it's a rivalry and in the um, the Empire's second family, the Wittelsbachs. So you've got the Catholic branch in Bavaria and a Calvinist branch, a, a radical Protestant branch in the Palatinate. And they formed rival alliances. 
So the, the situation in the empire is also tense. It doesn't mean that an a, a inevitable war is, is on the cards. It doesn't mean certainly that a war of, is going to last 30 years, but it means that there are problems. So when, uh, when the defenestration of Prague takes place in May of 1618, that is a kind of trigger for a crisis. And then there is the failure to contain that crisis and then the war spreads. And then we can probably talk about the, the dynamic of that uh, in, in a while. They just mentioned the defenestration of Prague. I mean, that's a question um, from Edo Mohammed on Facebook. He says, please, please, please talk about the defenestration <laughs> incident in Bohemia. Was it really such a pivotal event? I mean, I, I guess this is quite an important question, especially from a, um, a British perspective, where we won't, a lot of people won't know a lot about the Thirty Years' War. But if they have heard of anything, it probably will be the defenestration of Prague. So I, I wonder if you could explain what happened there and what the aftermath of that was. Well, um, we, we do remember this and we do know about it because it, it, it is such a dramatic act. I mean, three people are thrown out of a window and they, they're injured, but they survive. Uh, and it was intended to be a dramatic act because the, the group of nobles who have held high positions, have benefited from the various concessions that the Habsburgs have given, are now on the back foot. These concessions are being taken away from them. Their, their plum jobs are being removed. They're given second-rate jobs, and they're angry. But they're also angry that the majority of the population seem relatively indifferent uh, to this and to their cause, and they want them to take sides. They, want, they actually want to provoke a crisis, and the way that they they do this is to storm into the into the castle where the Habsburg government, that's uh, you know the the regents who represent uh, Habsburg authority are, are meeting, and they hoped the the kind of ringleaders of this act uh, hoped to actually to murder them. I mean, they really want to 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 cause something that you can't go back from. So it's intended to be deliberately provocative. I mean, I think a lot of the those people who were there at the time didn't realise this. If you ever manage, if we're ever able to go to Prague and you can get the chance to see, you'll see that the room where this takes place is really very small. So the, most people are in the big hall behind. They couldn't really see what was going on. And um, the sort of the ringleaders, are the, 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 the agitators, are the ones who throw them out of the window. And they're harking back also to an event earlier on in, in Bohemian history, which is a trigger for a revolt. So this is, you know, is, is definitely a symbolic act. And creates a situation where um, it, 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 it means that both sides find it difficult to sort of back down afterwards. So what was the, what happened next? I mean, you say neither side could back down. I mean, um, what form did that take, that not backing down? Right, well, that's, that is a good question. I mean, it, it, the situation is, so this happens in May. By, by the next month, both sides have, have armed. I mean, this is another thing that we need to think about. There, there isn't an inevitable war because nobody's actually prepared for a war. So nobody's got any troops. So you have to raise troops, first of all, and no one's got any money to pay for troops. So this takes some time. So it takes a little bit of time to get to get armed. So the defenestrators set themselves up as a, as a, a government. They, they, they had come up with a kind of legal fix 
fiction to say that they're only opposing one member of the Habsburg family and not the Holy Roman Emperor. So they're trying to sort of um, retain an air of legitimacy, which they're very conscious of because they are appealing for foreign aid and they uh, and they want assistance. And they really are trying to get the Habsburgs to negotiate and to um, reinstate many of the concessions that they're that they're in the process of losing. And at the same time, the Habsburgs are also weak and they they feel that they they can't. Um, they can't concede, otherwise they're going to lose even more face in the in the empire, and the situation will become even more difficult. So they insist that the defenestrators um, disband their troops. So this is the kind of we don't talk to terrorists type argument. Um, so neither side can really back down, and then military operations start, and then they're sort of all hoping that they they'll achieve a military victory that will give them the the, the uh, strengthen their bargaining position. And this is basically the fundamental way the war always continues. Uh, no one is really strong enough, so you hope for a victory to give you a position of strength where you know you're going to have to concede something, but it won't look like weakness. Okay, I thought this would be a good point to ask you. Could, could you give us, say, four or five of the landmark events of the 30, 30 Years' War, just to give us an idea of the chronology of the trajectory of this conflict? Right. I know a lot of things obviously happen, but are there four <laughs> and five main events you could pick out for the un- uninitiated? Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. So obviously we've got the defenestration. Um, then we have the intervention uh, initially of um, uh, Frederick V, the Elector Palatine, to whom the Bohemian crown is offered. So this is a sort of further defiance, and this all goes horribly wrong for for uh, the rebel cause at the Battle of White Mountain, and that's in November of 1620. And that really is a decisive battle because the the Habsburgs totally uh, rout their opponents and they confiscate the property of all the people that have opposed them and they sell or redistribute that property to all the families that have supported them. And this is on a massive scale. So half of the population in Bohemia changed landlord as a, as a result. So this is really on a massive scale. So once you've done that, you've got something that you want to fight for. You know, they, they have basically refounded the basis of the monarchy. The, the nobles are all people who own their owe their um, situation to this to the being benefit beneficiaries of this of this settlement. So they want to hang on to that, and that's what keeps drives the Habsburgs and their supporters on. And then the next stage is basically expropriating uh, the Elector Palatine, who's you know who refuses to compromise, and his lands and title are given to um, the Duke of Bavaria, who's provided much of the military muscle. So this is in the first stage of that is in 1623. So you've got a Catholic Imperial Habsburg sort of victory by that point. You have Danish intervention because the Danes are concerned about um, their own security issues, various issues in northern Germany. The war shifts to northern. In Germany, the Danes are then defeated. Uh, the war is again over. Um, the emperor is again able to extend this policy of expropriation um, by removing various other people who've opposed him and redistributing their, their property to, to supporters. So this looks like a massive increase of imperial and Habsburg power. That's by 1629. And that prompts ultimately the Swedes to intervene. And they have their own particular issues. 
and ambitions uh, which they haven't really worked out. Gustavus arrives without really a proper map or a plan and sort of makes things up as he goes along uh, with the initial victories by sort of 1631. Um, and then there, he too is also defeated. So the Swedes are defeated in by um, the end of November of 16, September, November, autumn of 1634, um, which is an, uh, an, uh, again another point when the war could have ended. Um, but the emperor bungles the the, the peace. They, the, he doesn't make sufficient concessions to do that. So the war continues. France intervenes to prop the the, the, the Swedes up, and the war continues um, with the last five years really running in parallel with the peace negotiations. So military operations being very closely related to trying to s- score that victory to improve your bargaining position until finally the, a kind of complicated interlocking peace is finally stitched together by October 1648 and the war comes to an end. Thank you, Peter. You did uh, cover a very complicated subject very succinctly there. Thank you very much. Um, Now, here's a question from uh, Robert Keynes on Facebook. This question is, he says, the Thirty Years' War, was it really as bloody as has been portrayed? Now, this is a conflict of a really gruesome reputation. I mean, does it merit that reputation? And if so, why? Mm. Right. I think I think the answer here is 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 yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, um the the sort of level of death and destruction has been has been exaggerated. Um so in the 19th century there was the impression that um uh, th- uh, um three quarters of the German population had died. Uh, and that that's definitely an exaggeration. But that doesn't mean that it's not a, a, an enormously traumatic and, and devastating event. And and also the the classic view is of of an escalation of violence, and if you look at the actual types of violence, that's not the case. I mean, things are really horrible from the beginning, but the scale of of the of the war does escalate. So the worst period is actually in the 1630s, where the war is general throughout the Holy Roman Empire. It's being fought in every region at the same time, and then it begins to abate a little bit in the sort of middle of the 1640s, where it as different parts of the empire become neutral and the war is funneled into certain areas which then are really truly devastated because they're the only bits that are still being fought over and some of the other areas are beginning to recover. So, I mean, when we're trying to to, to sort of assess the the, the, the level of, of death and destruction, we've also got to remember this is across 30 years and it's across a very large area. So it's quite possible, you know, it's perfectly possible for areas to escape bits of the fighting to have a relatively normal existence for a while, uh, but then the war to, to intrude. And there are other areas that are kind of ground down by by sort of year on year of relentless um, passage of troops and violence. Could you give us um, an example of some of the, the, the worst outbreaks of bloodletting during, during the conflict? Right. Well, the 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 the, u, the usual one uh, to to note is the um, the sack of Magdeburg. So this is a, a city of about twenty five thousand inhabitants. So that doesn't sound like very much, but if you think that the largest city in the empire is about forty odd thousand, so in comparable terms, we're talking about a city of like a million and a half or something today. Um, so this is besieged, it's blockaded. First of all, the imperial army is trying to use this as a base, um, and the this the 
the um, city doesn't want to let them in. Uh, it's blockaded and then that becomes a siege. Uh, and then finally, after repeated offers for, to accept a surrender, um, the, the city is stormed and then it catches fire. Um, and so there's a firestorm and the, the, about... Um, four-fifths of the population die and most of them it appears are actually they suffocate hiding in their cellars and uh, and get killed that way but it's really it, it was an event that was shocking uh, at, at the time and I think that this is important to note that while there is these really terrible events people did have still some sense of proportion you know some things are being perceived as more shocking than than, than others so that's on the massive scale and then we've got you know, we've got to remember lots of things that are not really recorded on a very day-to-day basis. You know, a small party of soldiers arriving in a village, um, in demanding um, supplies and so on, uh, and using violence. Uh, and you know, and obviously there's the violence of the battlefield too. We shouldn't forget that. Um, and what kind of impact did this have on the psyche of the residents of of Central Europe at the time? Right. Well, the, the 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 war really is perceived as as truly horrific. And when you when you read the accounts um, of the time, um, you 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 sense this. I mean, you get this sort of sort of sense of mounting fear. So those people who are living in areas where the war hasn't arrived are really concerned. They're very anxious for news. And this is, in fact, is one of the things that fuels the development of media at the time. So new forms of print media and so on, because people really want to know what's happening. And they're really concerned the war is going to end up in their in their area. And when it when it does, then there, it, there's often a shift over to despair because the initial encounters with soldiers um, is usually not so bad, but it's the repeated encounters as as that you're, you're you know yet yet again they've arrived and they've they've taken your last remaining animals or they've burnt your barn down again for the second time or something and you know so people give up and 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 and, and leave so there's this sense of um, a, a once flourishing land left uh, despoiled and uh, and desolate and there is a population contraction and you get this sort of people write about weeds growing in the streets and 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 this sort of this sort of thing so yeah because fear despair and then desolation and desperation and, and did it in any way foreshadow later conflicts like the napoleonic wars and the second world war in terms of refugee crises etc Oh yes, I think so, uh, and also we shouldn't forget actually the wars of the late seventeenth and very early eighteenth century are of are in in terms of um, numbers of troops and so on relative to proportion of population are also very very heavy burden, and they're one of the things that delays the recovery from from the Thirty Years' War. That within another sort of two decades or so, there's another prolonged period of warfare. Um, but yes, there's the the, the refugees is a is a major issue. Um, and we have all the kind of things that we're very familiar with today. Um, so, you know, a mixture in, in, in some cases of sympathy, but also a lot of resentment to refugees arriving. And, uh, you know, the, the t- some of the towns where um, refugees arrive, that they... they increase the population by 50 or, or, or even 75%. So it's a huge impact. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There are as many Britons, if we include the inhabitants of Ireland as well in that 
there are as many Britons as there were Swedes and Finns fighting in the war. So it's about 130, 140,000 overall, something like that. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Diogo Morg on Twitter asks, why did the conflict go on for so long? I mean, why is it known as the Thirty Years' War? I mean, I guess you've alluded to this a little bit um, earlier in our chat, but um, um, would I be right in saying that it's quite related to the fact that other players were uh, continuously sucked in, such as France and Sweden. Did that prolong the conflict? Yes, it definitely definitely does. Yes. So the 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 way to to to, to understand this, I think, as I say, is that the these external powers are intervening either to prolong or to shorten the war. So those that are in that are basically allied with the Habsburgs or sympathetic to the Habsburgs intervene because they want the war to end quickly because they want the Habsburgs to come and help them. Uh, and the principal one here is is Spain. So the other branch of the Habsburg family um, who are embroiled in this long-running war against um, what is now uh, the Netherlands, so the, the then called the, the, the Dutch Republic, which had once been a Spanish possession. Um, so they want the war to end the empire quickly so that the, the emperor can assist them against the Dutch. Um, so anyone who has sympathy with the Dutch or is uh, otherwise hostile to Spain uh, is trying to, trying to prolong the war. So the Dutch, for example, provide some money to start with to the Bohemian rebels. Um, the the Elector Palatine is um, the son-in-law of uh, James the First, and James the First of is is trying to sort of balance uh, European peace, and he's one of the few people who who sort of is trying to seek peace, but 
Britain's opportunities to intervene in the conflict are very limited because largely of its geographical position and also because the the Palatinate um, is very swiftly overrun and that denies them a base then in in the empire. So he provides some financial aid, which has the the effect of prolonging the conflict without really ever um, increasing the likelihood that the anti-Habsburg faction would would um, uh, would win. Um, Danish intervention, of course, restarts the war. And again, then Swedish intervention restarts the war. There's, the war has basically been over for a whole year by the time the Swedes pitch up. Uh, and French intervention, the French have provided financial aid to the Swedes because they think the Swedes will do their job for them. And when it looks like the, the, the Swedes can't do it without help, they have to send in troops and the French forces are increased uh, in the 1640s to, to sort of improve the chances of defeating the Habsburgs. Kind of mentioned Britain's uh, marginal involvement there, but this is a question from Hannah Laura Ridgely on Instagram. Did Britain ever consider military action? I mean, did, did we say we, we we provided? Would I be right in saying weapons and money? Was it? Were there ever any troops from England, Scotland, Wales on the ground at the time? Oh yes, there are. There are. There are a lot. There are, in fact, there are as many Britons, if we include the inhabitants of Ireland as well. In that, uh, there are as many Britons as there were Swedes and Finns fighting in the war. So it's about one hundred and thirty, one hundred and forty thousand overall, something like that. And about thirty or forty thousand of those are actually serving in the are Irish Catholic serving in the um, Spanish army, um, but the rest are, uh, are largely serving in. Um, the various German forces are opposed to the emperor in the, in the 1620s or in the Swedish army until the British civil wars uh, break out and then most of them go home. Um, so there's a significant number, but they are all um, essentially uh, unofficial in the sense that they, while they have, they have the permission, first of all, of James and then um, his son Charles I, they have, their, they have royal permission to serve um, they're not being officially organised. There are a couple of ha- uh, half-hearted attempts by by Britain to intervene on the continent, which are very unsuccessful. So, in a, in a way, Britain pours in quite a lot of money. It allows all of these men to go over, but because it's not coordinated effectively with diplomatic moves, it really doesn't um, achieve any of the goals that the Stuart monarchy uh, wanted. Great. Now, here's a question from Cheryl Barton-Petrie on Facebook. And her question is, was it really a religious war? And Tom Galante on Instagram kind of asked a similar question. Were there cross-confessional alliances? I mean, I, I guess the traditional perspective of the conflicts is very strictly Protestants versus Catholics. But is that entirely the case? That it, it, it isn't the case. Yeah, that that's our classic view um, that it's a, it's a war between Protestants and Catholics. Well, first of all, we've got to remember there are two different types of Protestant. At least there are Lutherans and there are Calvinists, and in, so the war breaks out in 1618. Well, 1617 was the centenary of the Reformation, and if you look at the 
political pamphlets and newspapers and so on that are published at the time, you would think there was going to be a war between the Lutherans and the Calvinists. I mean, they hated each other uh, because the, the Calvinists had basically made all of their converts at the Lutherans' expense, not at the Catholics' expense. And the Calvinist political activity was in fact endangering um, the benefits that the Lutherans had secured in the middle of the 16th century. So the Lutherans are by and large lukewarm to opposing the emperor and they do so when either if they had um, particular reasons because they the, the family the princely family felt you know they had various other grievances or they're forced into it um, so for example when the Swedes pitch up and the uh, they they need the alliance of various German princes uh, otherwise they're not going to have enough troops and they can't move um, southwards uh, so the um, brother-in-law of Gustavus Adolphus is the elector of Brandenburg and uh, he only joins um, the Swedish alliance when Gustavus turns up and turns his artillery and trains it against his palace and says basically you know I'm going to open fire unless you unless you join so a lot of them have been coerced into this but a, but a number of others especially it tends to be the kind of the younger sons, the people who can't inherit, the ones who are politically disadvantaged within the system within the empire, who do see advantages and raise troops um, uh, and, and are very important, in fact, for the Swedish war effort. So it, that that's the kind of political side of it. The other, the other thing I think to remember is that for some people, it really was a religious war. They see, they saw the world in kind of black and white terms. Um, they believed in certain versions of theology. So both in Catholic and also various Protestant theology that was essentially providentialist. So they could see the hand of God in, in human action. And they often felt personally summoned to, to take particular actions. So for them, it's almost more like a holy war than a religious war, sort of even on a higher kind of higher level. But they are by and large in a minority. And the people who tended to voice those opinions were also people who often didn't do the fighting. So not surprisingly clergy or uh, people who were uh, external observers. So if you if you were living in London and you were reading the news books in London, you would think this was a religious religious war. That's how it was presented to you. But if you were living in Germany, uh, where the war was being fought, you often had a very different view. I wonder if you could talk talk a little bit about, say, two or three of the main personalities driving the conflict. I mean, how how did how did their character um, play into? into the war and impact the trajectory that the, that the war took. Right. Well, the, the, obviously, with 30 years, there's a great sort of uh, panoply sure. of, of different characters. And uh, uh, most of them are, are, are men because it was mainly men who held political power. Um, but there, there are also a number of female characters. Uh, Amelia Elizabeth, who is the regent of Hessen Castle, which is one of the more militant Protestant territories, uh, which is a, a, a sort of secondary but important belligerent, especially in the second half of the war. Um, there's a very good biography of her and she's turned the Iron Princess, which gives you a kind of idea of, you know, her steely determination to do the absolute best for her um, her sort of uh, her, her young son whose lands have been occupied by the emperor's troops. Um, there's also, uh, along with Frederick V, there's his... Um, 
his wife, who is James I's daughter, so Elizabeth, uh, who's known as the Winter Queen, while he's known as the Winter King because their reign in Bohemia was so short. Well, he eventually dies of the of the plague, but she's got this enormous brood of children that she's trying again to do her best for, and um, so she's a, a, a major figure in in trying to sort of keep this anti Habsburg coalition going and trying to solicit support. Uh, and on the on the on the other side, there are a number of Habsburg women. One who um, Isabella Clara Eugenie, who's the governess of the Habsburg Netherlands, so the southern part of the Netherlands that is held by still by the Spanish, who is much more on the kind of compromise, peace breaking sort of um, uh, line. So we got you know characters like that. We also have obviously you know. Uh, important generals, so Wallenstein, the imperial general, who is eventually murdered when when it's discovered that he's about to defect to the to the enemy and things like that. So you know, the, 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 it's it's an era full of um, you know often larger than life characters. And what about the Swedish leader Gustavus? What what kind of what kind of uh, man was he? Yeah, he's he's. I I find him actually quite difficult to 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 warm to. I have to say. I mean, there's there's a, there's an awful lot of very hagiographic writing about him. You know, the Protestant savior and you know this military genius and so on. And you know that that's clearly an exaggeration. That's based on contemporary um, propaganda. And because he dies in battle. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 this and and it's an, this is a great disaster actually for the Swedes and the Swedes create this image of of him posthumously as well. It becomes even more exaggerated because it's it's like, look, our, we've sacrificed our king for you, therefore you really owe us. Um, but I mean, yeah, he he is certainly somebody who um, expands the war. I mean, he, he you can see how his initially his relatively modest goals to sort of protect Swedish security and then as the military successes open up um he you know expands his goals and digs his country deeper and deeper into the conflict um so i i, I actually <laughs> I struggle to to sympathize sure. really with him <laughs> sure okay and now we have a question uh from tom galante on instagram he he says can you describe the Treaty of Westphalia? What impacts did it have on modern concepts of national borders in Europe? Right. Um, so the, the 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 Treaty of Westphalia is 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 really complicated. So the Peace of Westphalia is an attempt to settle um, three wars simultaneously. So it is to settle the Thirty Years' War in the in fought in the Holy Roman Empire. It's to settle the war between Spain and the Dutch, and the also the war between Spain and France. And the Congress uh, gets two out of three, which is obviously not bad. So uh, the Spanish-Dutch conflict is settled by um, a treaty which is signed in the Westphalian town of Münster, um, which had been declared neutral during the Congress. And that's done in May of 1648. And that's that's successful. And that is Spanish recognition of Dutch independence. Um, and then there are two treaties, another one signed in Münster and one in Osnabrück, which is the other con- uh, Congress city in, in Westphalia. And they're um, agreed in October of 1648. Um, and they settle the Thirties War in the Empire. And then they, they, the delegates failed to settle the Franco-Spanish War, which um, drags on for another 11 years. So it's a very complicated settlement. The, we, we have two separate treaties ending the war in the Empire, which already suggests that it is, you know, it's complicated complicated. 
um, and the the terms run to you know there's over a hundred odd clauses and so on. But if you if you read the terms, they are all very very specific. You know, there this this prince will restore this piece of land to this count and this sort of thing. There's very little of the kind of grand, you know, abstract thinking and so on, which which is which is now been loaded onto this. So, the idea that this creates a, a the modern international secular state order based on on sovereign states is really a myth that was created by. Um, international lawyers uh, who writing in the 1860s who were reflecting back and trying to find you know they were conscious that the world had become like that or was well on the way to becoming like that and they were trying to trace it back and uh, but they misinterpret the the piece of Westphalia in as actually mandating that okay Paddy on Twitter his, his question is kind of related to that he asks did anything good come out of this war? I mean, <laughs> I guess what he's getting at there is how did the Thirty Years' War shape Europe and what were its main legacies? Mm, right. Well, within anything good, obviously, come, is, is your perspective. Um, so, I mean, another way of spinning that question is to ask who won, uh, which is is actually a surprisingly difficult question because, in many ways, it was a, it was a genuine compromise piece. So, um, the the Austrian Habsburgs um, don't get everything that they want, but they protected the settlement that they'd secured in their own lands, and they actually emerge, I would argue, in some respects, stronger. And one of the things is that they. One of the legacies is that the Holy Roman Empire can survived and continued to develop. It's not doesn't become a dead letter. The German principalities don't become independent and so forth. Um, Sweden becomes a Baltic great power and acquires various bits of territory on the on the German coast, which it held in, all the way through into 1815. Um, France gets a very small piece of Alsace, uh, which becomes much more significant in the 19th century than it than it was in in this period, um, and. Uh, yeah, there's otherwise it's broadly a compromise. There's a clear loser. The Palatinate is a clear loser. It's, it, it, it is restored, but only has half of its territory. Bavaria is a winner because it's, it keeps the other half. Um, and you can go down in, into sort of this. There's a kind of uh, quite a complicated, but nonetheless very successful um, settlement of the empire's problems, which basically developed a way in which... Um, uh, what we what we might term a religious issue could be diffused by examining it what it meant in in more secular terms. So they they didn't deliberately try to take religion out of politics, but the effect of it was to was to do that in the longer term, and that did encourage a kind of consensus type approach to to to, to politics, which I think is of, of significant long lasting legacy in Central Europe, despite its subsequent history in the 20th century. So did it to some extent draw the poison out of the relationship between Protestants and Catholics? Well, it 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 does to some to some extent, yes, I think so. I mean there is a kind of um uh, I mean, religion is certainly not taken out of of, of, of public life or out of, out of politics. And in many ways, the war used to be seen as a kind of Protestant triumph um, because the Calvinists gain um, uh, the same type of rights in the empire as the Lutherans had got. But Calvinism, uh, as a result, is a spent force. It doesn't make any more converts. And in fact, it's 
Catholicism is the is the religion which shows the dynamism in the in the later 17th century. Around 50 German princes convert to Catholicism, um, and if you go to southern Germany and you look at the churches that are built in that in that era, you you know this is the flowering of the Catholic Baroque, and you know this is a confident, rich, dynamic culture that that you can you can see. And Protestant culture was was to become much more important but i think developed in a in a rather rather different way what the war does do um for good or ill it was was to basically create the kind of confessionally divided landscape that that persists even today so northeastern germany is predominantly um protestant even now you know and that and that is a sort of longer term outcome and i've got a question here on instagram from it's Malak B, and that is what was the economic impacts of the war? Right, that's that's quite quite tricky to answer because of course you're looking at at thirty years. So the war is making an economic impact from the word go. Um, so we got to we have to remember that, and and we're and one of the problems I think in a, in answering a question like that is the tendency in the past to, to do a kind of simple before and after, and so this is why we get all of the complexities, for example, with the the loss of population. So we compare how many people were there in sixteen eighteen with how many seem to be around in in sixteen. 48 or 50 or whenever the census was done and of course a lot has happened in the meantime so we, we have to we have to set that as a kind of caveat i mean the the, the overall it's clearly a bad thing um yeah the the population does decline economic activity declines the economic position of the survivors in some respects was better for example land prices crash so it was possible to buy land cheaply um it's um Improved certain economic sectors, um, beer brewing, uh, uh, for instance, um, expands, um, whereas wine production contracted because the, the 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 vineyards were relatively, you know, could be destroyed um, fairly quickly, uh, but took years to cultivate. So, uh, you know, it has some of those type of those type of impacts. Um, but broadly speaking, this is, uh, you know, this is, is it, it leaves communities very, very heavily in debt. The debt problem is a is a drag on 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 economic recovery as well. So this is clearly a hugely traumatic event. How how large did the war loom in the imaginations of Europeans in the following centuries? Oh, I think quite large, and and I think that this is this is something that that persists. Um, and I would argue even persists today. I mean, the Thirty Years' War in many ways became the kind of benchmark by which you measured um, other conflicts. Uh, and, um, you know, if you think that about, um, well, in, in terms of the loss of adult adult population, adult male population, and, you know, left a lasting memory in, in Denmark and Sweden as well, you know, these are fairly small um, countries in terms of population, but lost quite heavily from their involvement in, the, in this and other wars at the same time, um, and it it has this this memory of of of, of horror, um, which is something which sort of goes away in the century or so after the war, but comes back um, because it's a, a key example of this is the is the book by the series of books by 
um, Christoph Grimmelshausen. Um, so one of his books, the one that's best known, is, is Mother Courage because it's reworked by Bertolt Brecht. Um, so the, these are written in the 1660s. Grimmelshausen experienced the war. He publishes his books after the war. They're then sort of forgotten by the um, early 18th century, but they're rediscovered in the 1790s uh, when Germany is being invaded by the French revolutionaries. And that's the era of romantic sensibility. And, you know, if we think of gothic horror and so on. And so it's it, it's in that zeitgeist that, that the sort of image of horror is, is sort of takes on this form which which has essentially persisted today. That was Peter Wilson. The Thirty Years' War, Europe's Tragedy, is published by Harvard University Press. You can find a link in this episode's show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on a medieval massacre in York. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.